If you turn with me right now to Genesis chapter 6, I'll be reading from verse 5 and on, and we're going to look at various parts of the text today as we go from Genesis 6 uh, through 7. And I'm going to start with verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Verse 17 of chapter 7. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Verse 23. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. And this is God's word. We started a new series last week. And we've been saying that whether you've grown up in the church or whether you're new to the church, you've probably heard some reference in the Bible, some story, some narrative as you've been growing up. Now, what are they about? What's the meaning? What's at the center of any of these stories? So what we're going to do, at least this summer, is we're going to relearn these stories. And today we're going to learn about Noah's Ark. And we have to ask, did God really wipe out the earth? How is that a God of love? There are three things we're going to learn today. We're going to learn the pain of God, the evil of man, and God's cure for sin. The pain, the evil, the cure. First, the pain of God, verses 5 through 7 and uh, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6. You see, 
God saw the wickedness of man. And it says that every inclination of man's heart, he saw it. He saw there was only evil all the time. And he says uh, his heart was filled with pain. There's pain. There's wrath. Not because he's hateful, but because he's so filled with love. Anyone who's ever loved somebody, when you see that they're, if you love somebody and you see them making bad decisions or you see them living foolishly, you see them just living out the consequences of their bad decisions, there's pain. But there's not just pain, there's anger, there's wrath. And it's not because you hate them, it's actually because you love them. If you've ever been hurt by somebody, you say, I trusted this person, I trusted him, I trusted her, there's pain. There's wrath. There's anger. Not because you hated them, but because you've loved them. Because of your love. The pain, in fact, the pain and the wrath, it's proportional to your love. And if that's the case with finite human beings, how much more is it for an infinitely loving God? It says God was filled with pain. Literally in Hebrew, that word, filled with pain, is there's this deep, unfulfilled longing like when a father abandons you or when your lover abandons you. He was filled with pain, this deep longing. Now why? It's because we're his children. We're his lover. What does this mean? God voluntarily bound his heart with his people. He didn't need us, but once he created us, once he made us, he knit, he intertwined his heart to our heart. He tied his joy, he tied his delight with us so that when something goes wrong with us, he experiences pain. Kind of like a parent, but there's nothing, it's nothing compared to God's love for his people. And yet, how do we respond to that love? How do we respond to God? We said, we don't want you. We said, we don't need you. We don't trust you. We're going to forget about you. We're going to blame you. And he could have ended this right there, but instead, he decided to suffer for us. And so he weeps for us. He grieves for us because of our sins. He grieves. That's what this text says. He grieves. I'm grieved, he says. Now, when God saw Adam and Eve all the way back in the beginning of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, when God saw Adam and Eve do what they did in the Garden of Eden, he knew. He knew he was going to suffer. So why did he let it happen? He knew it's going to happen. Why did he let it happen? Why did he choose to suffer? If he knew he was going to be suffering, if he knew he was going to be filled with pain, why did he choose it? Now think about this. Whenever you say uh, or ask a question like that, it's because you really think of e you're thinking of evil and you're thinking of suffering from our vantage point. That's what you're doing. Because if you believe that God is powerful enough to stop evil, if you believe that God is powerful enough to stop injustice, stop oppression, but he doesn't, he must be wise enough to let it continue. An all-powerful God who still lets evil continue, he must be wiser. He must know more. Now, if you knew all this, but he chose to suffer, he must know more, right? He must know more. Is it wise to say, I can't think of any good reason for why there's suffering in the world, so there must be no good reason? Or God must not exist as a result? Is that wise? Is that good logic? Is that good reasoning? We know that God must have thought that this was worth it. And even though he knew that his own heart would be filled with pain, it must have been worth it. Look at the enduring love of God. Look at the persevering, patient, long-suffering love of God. That's the pain of God. Now, second, 
we see the evil of man, the violence of man. In, in verse 7 and verse 13, God says, because the earth is filled with this violence, I'm going to wipe away mankind from the face of the earth. That's what he says. That's the judgment of God. You know what that means? That means that there are times when God's actually unhappy with your choices. There are times when God's actually unhappy with your decisions. He's unhappy with your life. That's what it means, that he can actually be unhappy with the choices you make. Now, if you believe in God's judgment, that's going to create, it may create some problems for your mind and for your heart. But what you have to see is that if you don't believe in God's judgment, you're going to have an even bigger problem, a bigger problem in your heart and mind. If today you read the story, this narrative, and you say, gosh, that's so primitive, that's ancient. I can't believe that. I don't believe that, that in a God like that. Then you still have a huge problem with suffering and evil and judgment in the world. You still have a, a big problem with, uh, with evil and violence in the world. And it's insurmountable because without God's judgment, evil wins in the end. And if evil wins, then either God is not all-powerful and he can't stop it, or he's not all-loving and he's not all-good because he chooses at all not to stop it. God says, I will wipe away, I will wipe away all of life on the earth because people are evil and people are violent. There's, ju there's judgment. There's justice. Now, for one, evil and violence, they're not unnatural. It's natural. By nature, big things eat smaller things. Viruses eat cells. Worms are eaten by fish. Animals eat each other. So on what basis can you say anything in nature is wrong? How can you say that rape is wrong unless there's something outside of nature telling you that it's wrong? How can you say that oppression or any form of injustice that you see in the world, how can you say that that is unjust unless you believe that there is something above nature telling you that that is wrong or unjust? If there is no God, then evil is natural. Evil is normal. God says we are evil. God says we are violent. There has to be justice. That's what he says. Now, secondly, he says, well, we believe that evil is practical. It's very practical at times. In some, case, evil, in some cases, evil seems sensible. Because when you're wronged, when somebody wrongs you, what happens? You get angry. You get bitter. And if you let that go too long, that evil in, and that anger, that bitterness, it's going to poison your heart. Now, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that, that bitterness and that anger? That's why we withdraw from people. That's why we retaliate against other people. That's why when we feel hurt, we try to hurt people back. And, and what happens, we can't just forgive. We can't just let it go. And if you can just forgive, if you can just let things go, then you've never truly been violated. You've never truly been hurt, and you've never truly loved somebody. It's why God can't just let it go. It's why God can't just forgive because he's infinitely loving. And because he's infinitely loving, he's been infinitely damaged. He's been infinitely hurt. That's why he can't just let it go. It would undermine his love for his people. There has to be justice. So no matter which way you look at it, there has to be justice. There has to be judgment. Lastly, it's endless. Evil is cyclical. There's endless evil. That's what he's saying here. 
Unless you believe that there's a just God, if you've ever experienced violence in your life, if you've ever experienced hatred in your life or some sort of evil in your life, you will pick up your sword, you will get sucked into a cycle of violence over and over, back and forth. It's why we need justice. It's why we need finality. An end, there's a judgment. Because sin is natural, and it goes beyond something that is physical, because it is practical, because it is endless, judgment is necessary. Or else you have a bigger, a much bigger problem with evil. Unless you see that God is a just God, and he has to be, you cannot say that he is a loving God. You will have a bigger problem with evil then. So what's the cure? How do you end it? What is God's cure for this pain and for our evil? How can he love us infinitely and yet bring justice and judgment? How can God be a sufferer and yet be just? How can he suffer in his love and yet be just in his judgment? And the answer is the flood. That's what we're going to see here in this passage. We're going to spend the bulk of the time on this point. The flood tells us that God is infinitely holy on one hand, infinitely just, and yet the flood tells us and shows us that he is infinitely loving and saving on the other. The flood, it wasn't the end solution. We know that because there's still evil in the world. The flood wasn't God's solution, but it's a pattern. It sets up a pattern, establishes a pattern for God's solution. And through the flood, you're going to see that there's judgment and salvation. In fact, there's salvation through the judgment. That's what we're going to see. Verses 8 to 10. Noah has found favor with God, he and his family. And you see that in verses 8 to 10. Now, verses 14 to 22, what does God do? God says, you want to make an ark. And you're going to put him, God puts him in the ark. You're going to build the ark, verse 14. And then God puts them in the ark. Verse 22, Noah obeys. The author of Hebrews, in chapter 11, cites Noah. He talks about Noah. In verse 7, he says, Noah, uh, when he was warned of things that he didn't see. In other words, he was warned of the storm. He was warned of the judgment. In holy fear, he built the ark. In other words, Noah believed. That's holy fear. He obeyed. That's faith. That's faith. In other words, the gospel is more than just something that you receive because it seems rational to you. Noah believed in God, but it's actually more than that. When God warned him of things that he didn't see, he said there's going to be a justice, there's going to be an end, there's going to be a judgment. It shaped Noah. It's not like what he saw around him pointed to that. But what God said, his word, it shaped him. And his belief, it let what God says about reality shape his view of reality. He saw reality underneath the reality. He trusted God. God said, a storm is coming. Remember Batman, right? A storm is coming, Mr. Wayne. God says, a storm is coming, Noah. And Noah responded. And for years, in the middle of nowhere, he responded by building this ark. The sun is shining, the birds are chirping, and people, they're just doing whatever they want. They live however they want. What is Noah doing? In the middle of nowhere, he builds this ark. And he builds it for years and for decades. He's just building. Why? Why does he do that? Noah says, or what he's saying is, I will not be defined by what I see right now. 
not by today's views of sex, today's views of money, today's views of parenting, today's views of spirituality. I'm going to be defined. I'm going to trust what God says. That's faith. In other words, if you're defined by wealth, then it's about building wealth. It's about accumulating wealth, accumulating power, building your life, getting stronger. That's going to be your ark. That's your salvation. But you know what that does? That leads you to what? Evil and violence because it's man against man. You've got to step all over people to get ahead. If you're defined by your career, what are you going to do? Then it's all about positions and titles and salary and power, maybe even wealth accumulation. And it's going to be over other people's positions and titles and salaries. What are you going to do? You're going to step all over. You're going to step on their necks to get ahead. What is that? That's evil. That's violence. If you're struggling with bitterness, if you're struggling with anger, if you're struggling with, with hurt in your life, then it's about self-preservation. I'm just not going to interact with anybody. I'm going to withdraw from everybody. What are you doing? That's self-defense. You're withdrawing from people. What are you doing? You're cutting yourself off. You're going to hurt people. There's violence. There's evil. Do you see that? What about parenting? Then it's your children over other people's children. Your way. Life is constantly a power play. Life is constantly about comparing what you have versus what other people have, how your children live versus how other people's children live. And that's going to lead to envy and jealousy, competition, violence. Violence. Capitalism is what? Man against man. That's one end of the spectrum. Communism is what? Class against class, which is just another form of man against man. It's just evil and violence in a cycle. That's what it is. Anything that the world offers you as a solution, as a salvation, as an ark, is going to lead you to a life of evil and violence, and you will sink. That's the judgment. That's the judgment. You don't get thrown into judgment. I used to think that as a child. At some point, the earth just kind of opens up, and God just throws you into judgment. You actually choose it. We choose it. What you will be. You are now becoming. You are choosing it until one day you're drowning. If you live by sight, you will develop a spiritual myopia, a nearsightedness, a very short-sighted view of the world. And it's an inaccurate view of the world. Noah was warned. What did he see with his physical eyes that was different from anybody else around him? The birds are chirping. The sky is blue. And yet he was warned and he obeyed. He had God's word. We have God's word. And he obeyed. He saw a reality beneath the reality. And in chapter 7, really what chapter 7 is about, God places Noah and his family, they enter the ark. And again, the Hebrews author, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, he says, Noah, as a result, he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's the heart of Christianity. That's the Bible. That's the heart of the Bible. How do you, in other words, how do you find shelter from the storm? The Bible says you can only receive it. You can't earn it. You can't find it on your own. That's what we're doing. Life is just pursuing, building, accumulating because we're looking for that kind of security. We want an ark. We want salvation. The Bible says you can't earn it. 
You can't work up to it. You can't find it on your own. Noah became an heir of righteousness. What's an heir? An heir is it's someone who got rich, basically through somebody else who did all the work, and then they died. So in essence, that person didn't earn it. It really came through a relationship, and it came because of that person's death. Now, just kind of illustrate that. Let's say there's a woman, very smart, very industrious, works very, very hard, and uh, as a result, she claims a market niche. And uh, she earned it. She worked for it. She worked very, very hard for it. Put in her blood, put in her sweat, put in her tears. She made lots of money, and then she dies. She passes that money on to her children. How did they get rich? How did her children get rich? Did they earn it? No. It was simply because they have a mother that did all the work. So it was really through their relationship. And as a result, her children, they're every bit as wealthy as their mother. Why? Because in a way, they're united to their mother through a relationship. The text says Noah became an heir of righteousness. In other words, he received it. He didn't earn it. He received it. It came through a relationship, and it came through the infinite suffering, the infinite love, the infinite pain of God for his children. That's what it came from. You see, religion says this. Religion says you've got to earn it. You've got to take it. You've got to work for it. You know what that sounds like? Evil. Comparisons envy, jealousy, fighting. What are they taking? What are you working for? Righteousness. You know what the word righteousness means? The righteousness, in a sense, it basically means God's approval. When you are declared righteous, it means that you have the approval of God. Religion says you've got to earn God's approval. That's how you are saved. But the gospel, the gospel teaches you receive it. You can't earn it. You can't do enough to earn it. You only receive it. You are an heir. That's how you are saved. Faith in Jesus, it gives us a righteousness. We receive it. Why can't we earn it? Because if you try to earn it, what's it going to result in? Violence. It's going to result in violence. Every time you talk about somebody else in this congregation, what are you doing? You are promoting that violence. Every single time you are comparing yourself to the person next to you, what are you doing? You are perpetuating that violence. Every single time you are demonstrating malice to another person, here or outside, what are you doing? You are perpetuating that cycle, that endless cycle of violence. It's why we want wealth. It's why we want to be beautiful. It's why we're constantly comparing ourselves. It's why we want that sparkling career in our lives. Because when you have those things, what does it sound like? What does it feel like? It gives you a sense of approval. You feel worthy. You feel accomplished. It gives you a sense of righteousness. You're saving yourself. Do you see that? But to earn it, there's fighting. You're stepping on people's necks. You were destroying their reputations. You, gossip, that's what that is. You're basically murdering somebody. You're murdering their reputation. There's the comparisons. There's the envy. There's the pride. That's how you know. That's how you know if the gospel is planted in your life more deeply. Because if you're constantly complaining, and if you're constantly talking about other people, if you're constantly gossiping about other people, really what you're doing, that's, that's religious. 
That's what religious people do. You know why? Because religious people say they can't earn it. I would never be like them because I'm okay. That's what we're doing. You're living out the endless cycle of evil and violence in society. You see that? But as an heir, because you are in a relationship with Christ, you are united with him. That means that what he has, you have. What he deserves, you receive. That means that you are every bit as loved, every bit as honored, every bit as glorious, every bit as rich as Jesus. Noah, he went into the ark. Hide in that. That's what Noah did. He hid in that. He received. He obeyed because he trusted and he was saved. That's the meaning. That's chapter 6, verses 14 to 27. That's what it is. You go to a doctor and uh, you listen to your doctor. The doctor tells you you need surgery. And what he says is, I'm going to remove this thing in you that's killing you. It's a tumor. I'm going to remove it because it's growing. And one day it's going to overtake you. And so I'm going to remove you. And it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine when it's gone. And you listen to him. You say, oh, I trust you. You are, I am in the hands of a very skilled person, a very wise person, someone who knows far deeper than myself. I trust you. But then you know what happens? You go to the operating room, and what do you see? You see the operating table. You see the straps. You, you know that smell when you're in an operating room or in the hospital? You smell that smell. You see the needles. You see the tools. You see the people who are rushing around preparing things. And it starts to make you antsy. That's what it does, right? And you, you look at the tools, and they're very, very sharp. And what happens? There's a fear that overtakes you. You know what that is? That's the storm. That's the storm. You know what you're doing? You're living by sight. That's what you see. But instead of trusting the doctor less because of your circumstances, that's when you need to trust the doctor more. That's when you need to trust him more because the real horror is not the tools. The real horror is not the doctor. What's the real horror? It's what's inside that needs to come out. That's the horror. That's what's killing you. It's a disease that's inside. Why don't we trust then? It's because we're living by sight. Why the flood? The flood does two things. The flood, uh, one, there's newness. It stops the evil for a moment. It, it ends the human violence. Verses uh, 11 to 13, God says, uh, he says, well, this is chapter 7, verse 11 to 13, he says, they're corrupted. Literally in Hebrew, what he's saying is, these people have corrupted themselves in a, to the point of destruction. They have self-destroyed themselves through their own destruction. That's the, that's the literal uh, words in Hebrew there. And God says, as a result, I will destroy them. I'm going to put an end to the misery that they are already doing to themselves. They are already destroying themselves through their destruction, therefore I will destroy them. That's really what he's saying there. The meaning of the flood in chapter 7 is this. That same water that is sinking everybody else actually lifts the ark and saves God's people. The same judgment that sank those who didn't believe, they all saw the same thing, but because they didn't believe, it uplifted those who did believe, and it gave them newness. It gave them newness. That's the first thing it did. The second thing it does is it shows us that God is still committed to the world. Notice, he doesn't wipe out everybody and then start over, and you see Genesis chapter 1 all over again. That's not what happens. It shows that God is still committed to our world. He's committed to its renewal. 
And the result is, through this judgment, through the rain, through the death, there is grace. And yet, it's not complete. The first thing that Noah does after the flood is what? He gets drunk and he screws up his family royally. So God didn't save Noah because he was good. God didn't save Noah because he was perfect. He is an heir of righteousness. He received God's approval. And, and God, he didn't intend a flood of judgment to end sin once and for all. Not there, not then. The storm and that flood, that water, was a mere foreshadowing of the ultimate judgment. The ultimate judgment. The ultimate justice. How? In Luke chapter 8, we see another storm. We have the disciples, they're in a boat. And a, a squall comes, and it says that the boat was swamped because of the waves, because of the water. And what does Jesus do? He gets up, and he rebukes the storm. That's all he does. And he calms the storm. Look at the control of Jesus. Look at the command. That's where you know that God is all-powerful. He could stop the judgment. He could stop the evil. He could stop the violence. So what does this mean? What is Jesus doing there in the boat? He's actually reversing the curse. He's reversing the, the, the course of nature. What was natural was the storm. The nat- what's natural is the death. But what Jesus does is he reverses it. He calms the storm, and he brings them to a peace. Why? Because whereas before, the nature of man is evil, and that leads to death, Jesus would come because he is peace, and he reverses the curse. He reverses the judgment. Why? Why does he do that? It's because one day, there will be a greater storm, an ultimate storm where God's total wrath will come onto the earth. And who's at the bottom of this storm? Jesus plays the storm. Jesus is swallowed up. Jesus drowns in this storm. How do you know? When Noah builds the ark, God tells him to use a certain kind of wood. He actually gives him very specific instructions of the type of wood that, God, that Noah's going to use. And, and the Hebrew word for that word wood in that, in that passage is the word eitz. That word is very particular because uh, throughout the Old Testament, whenever you see that word, that particular Hebrew word, eights being used uh, uh, for the word wood, it's often used in the context of God's judgment. All the way, you see it through and through, through and throughout the Old Testament. The word eights comes up, it's always in the context of God's judgment until you get to the New Testament. That word is, the word that's used is in the context of the cross, The cross is the ultimate wood of God's judgment. In other words, Noah, he was saved because he hid in the ark. He hid in the wood of God's judgment. That's what he did. We are saved because we hide in the ark of Christ, of Jesus, who was nailed to the wood of God's judgment. That was the cross. The cross actually represents the judgment For all who don't believe, for those who don't believe, who don't trust Jesus, who say, we're going to just live our own way, we're going to forget about you, not think of you, not be thankful for you, not consider you, not listen to you, but it gives newness to everyone who believes, to everyone who trusts. And the cross shows us that God is still committed to renewal. Because although he judges the world, through that justice and through that judgment comes grace for his people. And we receive that grace as heirs of Christ's righteousness, just like Noah. How? By hiding in the cross of Christ. That's what saves us. 
on the cross, all of God's wrath comes down. Noah, even though it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, even though all of mankind was wiped off from the earth in that moment, life persisted. The totality of God's wrath didn't fall on the earth at that time. But on the cross, the totality of God's wrath was pelting down like rain on the cross, like a storm. Everything that the human race deserved. And what do you see on the cross? A real storm. In fact, if you read the Gospels, it says the sky grew dark, the earth shook, and Jesus is nailed to the cross, and he's sinking. And his sinking becomes our salvation because on the cross he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying here is that now I am suffering the ultimate pain. Now I'm suffering the ultimate unfulfilled longing because God himself has been separated from me. The Trinity was literally torn apart on the cross. That means that God, if he experienced grieving, there's nothing like being separated from his own son. And Jesus, nothing like being separated from God the Father. He's been separated from life. That's what's happening. Complete separation from God. God has turned his face from me. He has said, I am forsaken. Now I'm suffering the unfulfilled longing of being separated from God. I've been ripped apart from the love of God. The wrath of God is being pelted. It's just being, I'm being pelted by the wrath of God like a storm, the ultimate storm of God's judgment, the ultimate storm of God's wrath, the ultimate storm of God's justice. And yet, he gladly did it. That's his love. He chose to suffer. That's God's love. God sent his son, his one and only son, to die. That is the extent of God's love. God is committed to a sacrificial suffering love. Jesus is committed to a sacrificial suffering love. And he faces the ultimate storm of God's wrath because of our sins. Jesus got everything we deserved. Why? So that we would receive everything that he deserves. That's how you know that you are totally loved. That's how you know that you are totally saved. That's how you know that you will be totally glorious and rich in him. Because anyone who hides in the judgment wood of the cross will be saved and be an heir. You will receive it not because you earned it, not because you worked for it. You receive it because Jesus deserved it. Jesus earned it. The righteousness of God. What are you hiding in? What ark are you hiding in? Because there's a storm coming. You heard it. It's in the Word. That's God's Word. The sky is blue. The sky is blue. The people... They're just working, doing their thing every day. Everything seems normal in the world, but there's a storm coming. And this time, everyone and everything will sink. Do you see reality beneath the reality? Do you see clearly? Or do you still have that spiritual myopia? Will your ark stay afloat? Will you hide yourself in the ark of Christ, the cross of Christ, we're going to sing in response. We're going to sing, My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Will your ark stay afloat? Rock of ages cleft for me, 
let me hide myself in thee. We sang, save from sin and make me pure. That means make me righteous. Will your ark lift you? Will you be lifted in your ark? When sorrows like sea billows roll, will you be able to get in the ark of Christ that is the gospel and say, it is well, it is well with my soul? That's how you survive the storm. That's how you survive. Do you trust? Will you trust and obey? Let's pray.